Past couple of weeks, we've been talking about bodybuilding, not building our own bodies, but building up the body of Christ, specifically through uh, gifts of the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul makes the case that we're all part of the same body, the body of Christ. And then he uses that body metaphor to teach us about the diversity of spiritual gifts that are intended to benefit the whole body of believers. Those gifts, which are things like prophecy or speaking in tongues or wisdom or leadership or miracles, they all come from the Holy Spirit and are intended to strengthen the church. And chapter 12, or excuse me, chapter 13 tells us that love is the context in which these gifts of the Spirit have to operate. Without love, even the most impressive and powerful gifts are worthless, Paul says. And today, we're going to conclude this section of the letter about spiritual gifts with chapter 14, where Paul gets into some specifics about those gifts of the Holy Spirit and guidelines for how they ought to be used. And the theme from chapter 12 all the way through chapter 14 stays pretty much the same, that we should seek to build up, that is, to strengthen, to encourage, to bless, to sustain, to support the body of Christ, the church. And as we consider this chapter, we need to continue to keep in mind that this letter is situational and it's corrective as well. Paul was addressing problems that were taking place in the Corinthian church, and they were problems that are probably pretty different than problems that we have in our congregation. Not that we couldn't have similar problems, but we just might not have the same problems. And I say that because I could easily teach the details of this passage and we could all learn something about what Paul said, but we might go home and go, okay, well that doesn't really mean anything. It doesn't apply to us because we're not facing the same problems. We could learn that Paul says that two or at the most three should speak in a tongue. Well, okay. But we almost never experience that. It almost never happens in our services. So talking about putting a limit on it really doesn't do a lot for us. It doesn't say a lot to our situation. You can't go home and apply that today, can you? And we can read that Paul's instructions regarding prophecy, and we could pat ourselves on the back, and, and we could say, well, we keep all those rules, but maybe we only keep the rules because we're not playing the game. I mean, if, if, you, if you see your family playing Uno and you say, no, thank you, I'm not going to play, no one's going to accuse you of cheating, right? Because you're not playing. That's not really a reason to pat yourself on the back and say, well, I'm not a cheater, I didn't break the rules. Yeah, you didn't because you're not playing the game. And in the same sense, if we read rules that were intended to correct a particular situation, pat ourselves on the back and say, okay, we know the Bible better, that's great, except maybe we've actually missed how the Holy Spirit would want to apply these things in our lives. My suggestion would be that perhaps if, if Paul were writing this letter to our church, his primary guidance to us wouldn't be about how to limit or cap the number of spiritual gifts that we utilize or see in our body or in our services, but might be encouraging us to seek gifts of the Spirit. In fact, even in Corinth, where it appears that the gift of tongues was being overused and was being abused, Paul still urged them to seek spiritual gifts. That's how he begins and how he ends this passage. Look at 1 Corinthians 14.1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. 1 Corinthians 14.39, as he's closing this section of the book. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. So if the Bible instructs us to earnestly desire to seek spiritual gifts, 
then I want to encourage you today that you shouldn't be afraid of spiritual gifts. This is one thing that I think keeps us from seeing these things in our midst is that sometimes people are confused or afraid and you shouldn't be afraid. So let's begin by reading verses 1 through 19 where the Apostle Paul says this, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle sounds, uh, gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church." Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing praise with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. I think one of the reasons that some people are fearful or they're skeptical of spiritual gifts like prophecy or tongues or other ways in which someone isn't, uh, who isn't considered an expert or isn't speaking from the platform, they might spontaneously contribute publicly to a service or to a group, is perhaps because they don't know if it's going to make any sense. But what the Apostle Paul tells us here is this, that you can intelligently strengthen the body. You can intelligently strengthen the body. I've been in services where someone spoke what they apparently thought was a prophecy. And it was so vague, had so many mixed metaphors, or used such archaic language that I had no idea what it was supposed to mean or what I could possibly learn from that prophecy in that setting. I, I, was, I was dumbfounded as to, as to what they were saying or, or what it could mean for my life or for anybody else, frankly. And some people write that off as just being the nature of prophecy. That's just the nature of spiritual gifts. But I don't think so, because if it was, if spiritual gifts were just gonna be weird, then why would Paul go to such great lengths to tell us when they are used in the church to build up the body of Christ, they must be understandable. They have to be intelligible so that we can understand what God is saying to us. Paul's primary concern in these verses is that a spiritual gift shared in a worship gathering would be understandable so that it could indeed strengthen, encourage, direct, or comfort the church. And Paul 
contrasts speaking in tongues and prophecy, so let's consider what he said about each one. If you're not familiar with the terminology or the practice of speaking in tongues, it's the act of praying in a language that you don't understand, that you have not learned. And this is enabled by the Holy Spirit. We've talked about this in weeks past, so I can't take a lot of time to describe it today, but the book of Acts describes this at several places, including Acts chapter 2, where it describes the day the Holy Spirit was poured out on God's people. In Acts 2, the languages that they were speaking were were languages of, uh, were human languages and were understood by some of those who overheard them. But here in 1 Corinthians, apparently no one understood what was being said when someone spoke in tongues publicly. And Paul or the Corinthians, or, or maybe both, uh, seemed to think that this was the language of angels and not a human language. And that sounds really strange, especially if you're not from a Pentecostal church or a Pentecostal background. So what is up with speaking in tongues? Well, Paul says that the nature of tongues is that it is a person speaking to God through the Holy Spirit. In fact, verses 15 to 16 tell us that when a person is speaking in tongues, their speech consists of one of three things, prayer, praise, or thanksgiving. And they're being inspired by the Holy Spirit to pray or to praise or to give thanks in a way that is beyond their own ability and even understanding. And while they're offering prayer, praise, and thanksgiving to God, they don't know what they're saying. And not only is this implied by the need that Paul says for interpreting what was being said, but that Paul says in verse 14 that when he prayed in tongues, his spirit prayed, but his mind was unfruitful. But if you can't even understand what you're saying, Why bother? Well, verse four tells us that a person who prays in the spirit builds himself or herself up. In other words, there is some kind of direct communication with God when you pray in the spirit that strengthens the believer in a way that that bypasses your, your rationality, your mind. It's not to say that you're out of your mind. It's to say that you are communing spiritually with God when you speak in tongues. I think this is what Paul meant when he said in Romans 8, 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. This has certainly been my experience and heard this experience from many others as well. When I pray in tongues in my private prayer life, I don't know what I'm saying. Nevertheless, in those times, I feel that I am drawing near to the Lord. I feel a sense of closeness, of intimacy with God. I feel a swell of confidence as I pray in tongues. And I'm not saying that we ought to base our theology on my experience or anyone else's. But when our experience aligns with what the Word of God says, then it gives confirmation to our experience and how we ought to pursue God. Listen to Jude 20 to 21, it exhorts us, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So even though you might not know what you're saying when you're praying in tongues, it's not a fruitless exercise. Your mind may not know what you're saying, but you are speaking to God and you are communing with God in a way that is directly spiritual. I've been talking about praying in tongues privately, but what about when someone prays in tongues publicly or in a church service? Is there a distinction? Well, yeah, there is. In fact, Paul himself makes that distinction in verses 18 to 19, where he claims to speak in tongues more than any of those in the Corinthian church, yet he didn't do it publicly. 
Nonetheless, he did not forbid speaking in tongues in church. Rather, he said that if someone were to speak in tongues publicly, that has to be interpreted. The meaning of what was said has to be made clear for everyone. And the reason is that while the speaker may be built up internally while praying in tongues, no one else is being built up if they cannot understand what is said. And he gives us an illustration of this, and for that illustration, I need a volunteer. Was anybody brave enough to volunteer this morning to come help me with an illustration? Come on up. Come on up, Luz. You'll be perfect. So Paul gives us this, uh, this illustration, and Luz, I need to ask you, come all the way up here. Luz, do you play any instruments? No instruments. Perfect. You're the perfect candidate this morning. So I've got something for you to try here this morning. Um, this is my wife's trumpet. If you didn't know, my wife played the trumpet in junior high. And so I've cleaned it. I've sterilized it, I promise. And I just want you to grab hold here, Luz. It's okay. It's, it's old. It's, it's, you can drop it. Um, and just play us a little something, okay? Give it a go. Come on. You volunteered. Oh, yeah. Give it a little go. Let's hear what you got. Come on. You got to try you got nothing? Come on. Okay, thank you, Luz. Thank you for that help. We were, I was hoping we'd get a little note or a squeak. There was some air that came through. I could hear that. That's great, though, because in verses 7 to 8, Paul makes his point with instruments. And we read this. Even if you can produce a sound with an instrument, if it's not a distinct sound that conforms to our understanding of what music is or what it would be like if, if somebody were to, to sound an alarm on a trumpet or a bugle. If we can't understand what's happening, it's useless unless we can understand it. How many of you have ever been in a setting where you were, uh, you were uh, surrounded by people who were speaking a language you didn't understand? Have you ever been in a situation like that? And they may have, probably were ignoring you altogether, but what are you thinking is happening? You think they're talking about you, don't, don't you? That's, I mean, that's what we all assume. They're talking about me. And, and we, we feel like a foreigner to them, and they're a foreigner to us. That's exactly what Paul says. So with speaking in tongues publicly. You might feel like you're being built up, and, and, and that's great for you. But Paul says when we get together for worship, it's not just about you. Instead, it needs to build up the whole body. You don't want to make people feel like they're foreigners to you because they can't understand what's going on. And so Paul's response isn't that everyone should just get more spiritual and, and deal with it if I want to speak in tongues, but that if someone speaks in tongues publicly, they should pray that they would be able to interpret what they have said and and if no one is present who they know can interpret, then they should be silent, Paul says. They should not pray openly in tongues. One more note about what is commonly called a message in tongues would be this. There's no such thing. The Bible never, ever mentions a message in tongues. It calls it an utterance of tongues. It just calls them tongues most of the times. But I think that the terminology message in tongues is pretty confusing because when I've heard someone interpret what they have called a message in tongues, it's almost always been uh, as if they were speaking from God to people in the congregation. But what does the Bible actually teach we're doing when we pray in tongues? We're praying, or we're praising, or we're giving thanksgiving to God. And so if prayer, praise, or thanksgiving was interpreted into English so that we could understand in our context, would it sound like 
thus saith the Lord kind of prophecy, or would it sound like a petition made to God, or praise lifted to God, or giving thanks to God for something? Well, the answer is obvious. If you're interpreting, which is the word Paul uses, then the interpretation will also be in the form of prayer, praise, or thanksgiving. And this is important because this is in fact the distinction between tongues and prophecy. One is spirit-inspired speech from people to God. That's speaking in tongues. One is spirit-inspired speech from God to people. That's prophecy. So let's look at the God to people part or the prophecy. Verses 29 and 30 imply that this was not prepared speech. This was spontaneous. That's what prophecy was. It wasn't that uh, somebody had written something out in a sermon or something like that. This was spontaneous. It says in 29 to 30, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. And people often think of prophecy as if it's predicting or telling the future. And while that did happen in the Old Testament, and it even happened in the New Testament, that's not all that there was to prophecy. And it doesn't seem to be Paul's emphasis in this passage. In 1 Corinthians 14.3 teaches that prophecy builds up. It encourages, it consoles. 1 Corinthians 14.24 says that it can convict people. And the whole point Paul is making is that prophecy can be understood by those who hear it without the need for that prophecy to be interpreted. And as a result, it strengthens the church, it builds up the church by providing encouragement, conviction, or comfort. I've heard people speak a prophetic word in churches before, and while they were speaking in English, like I said before, I hadn't the slightest idea what they were talking about or, 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 or how anyone could have any idea what they were talking about. There were so many metaphors. There were so many thus saith the Lord's. There were so many that you couldn't make any sense, heads or tails, of what was being said. And when we're considering spiritual gifts in the church, we need to keep the goal in mind. It's not so that we sound spiritual. It's not so that we have feelings of some kind. It's to build the body, and Paul says that means it has to be understandable. Some people feel that they have to make it sound like an Old Testament prophet or preface everything with that old saying, thus saith the Lord. But God, when he spoke to the prophets in the Old Testament, he was speaking through them to his people in a way that his people at the time could understand. I mean, think about it. He used all kinds of imagery that they could grasp. He talked to them about sheep and cattle and potters and harvests and things that were really common in their culture. We don't necessarily need to think that if there's going to be a prophetic word in our culture that it's going to include sheep or potters or anything else that was common in their culture. Why? Because the whole point isn't that God would make it all sound the same. The point of prophecy is that God speaks to people in a language they can understand that we would be clear on what he wants and how he's leading us. It would comfort and convict and encourage. And so we might expect he would even use imagery that is common to us, things that we can grasp and things that we could understand. This is the pattern that God sets. Prophecy and tongues aren't the only two spiritual gifts, but they are highlighted in 1 Corinthians 14 because there seems to have been a problem uh, with the people in the Corinthian church focusing on tongues, and Paul wanted to correct that. But the larger point for us should be to see that spiritual gifts aren't intended to be spooky, vague, or perplexing when we hear them. They're intended to be intelligible, to build up the church. And that doesn't mean that they are rationalistic or that they merely arise out of our minds. 
Rather, spiritual gifts are from the Holy Spirit, but we shouldn't be afraid of them because we think they seem unintelligent or we think they seem so cryptic and mysterious that they're useless. God wants to speak to us in a language we can understand. And when you think of it that way, that's actually pretty exciting. God wants to give direction, counsel, comfort, conviction to his church. And we should be open to that. We should be open to how the Holy Spirit wants to speak intelligibly through his people to guide, to strengthen, to comfort, to console, and to convict. We'll talk more about what that could look like and how in a moment, but let's continue with the passage. And in verses 20 to 25, we discover that not only can you intelligently strengthen the body, but that you can contribute to the sense of God's presence in the church. Let's read verses 20 to 25. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, they will not say that you are, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Now Paul is still arguing here for the intelligibility of spiritual gifts, but now he switches his focus from believers to unbelievers. And the quotation that he uses from the Old Testament in verse 21 comes from Isaiah 28, 11 to 12. And Paul uses it because in it, God warned Israel that he was gonna bring judgment on them through people who spoke a language radically different from any that they were used to on their side of the Middle East. And they were convinced, they, they, were, uh, they were going to be judged in that way, but they were not convinced by this prophecy. And they did not repent as a result of that, as a result of being unable to understand that language. And in a similar sense, Paul is saying, an unbeliever won't listen, they won't understand the conviction if they can't understand what's being said. I've heard some people say that church is for believers, not for unbelievers, and while we don't seek to conform worship to secular ideals, it's not the same thing to suggest that our services, including spiritual gifts and how they are used, should be intelligible to people who are coming in for the first time. We should expect unbelievers to be present when we gather. We should be ready for them. We should prepare for them. But according to Paul, that won't lead us to banning spiritual gifts, but it will lead us to their intelligible and proper use. And in what appears to be a contradictory statement, verse 22 says that tongues are a sign to unbelievers and, a prophes- or, and prophecy to believers. But by sign, Paul is referring to a sign of God's disapproval, as the word was sometimes used in the Old Testament. And when God gave a sign and his people rejected it, it would end in their judgment. In the same way, if the only sign of God's presence among his people was speaking in tongues, unbelievers would think they were out of their minds, and they would reject the gospel without ever even hearing the gospel, and thereby they would incur God's judgment. 
The second half of verse 22 says that prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for believers. And we should note that it doesn't actually include the Greek word for signs. It's not present there in the second half of the verse. And it seems that Paul means that the intention of prophecy is for believers to be built up. But he doesn't mean that prophecy has no benefit for unbelievers because he tells us in the following verses, if genuine prophecy is occurring in the church, then an unbeliever would recognize and sense God's presence among his people, be convicted of sin, repent, and by falling down and confessing, Paul means that that person would be saved. That was the power of prophecy. And that is pretty powerful, isn't it? One of the concerns that I've heard people express about spiritual gifts is how they might drive unbelievers away. And of course, if spiritual gifts are misused, they certainly could drive unbelievers away. But we should also consider what we might be missing out on if we neglect them altogether out of fear or out of insecurity. Our response to God's word should be that we would pray and seek that God will give us gifts and will demonstrate his presence among us and that we will follow him in that in a way that is intelligible, that is understandable so that those who are not from here, when they come in, might sense his presence among us, be convicted and be saved. As Gordon Fee says, along with the great need for local communities to be edified, the reasons set forth in this paragraph ought to be sufficient to lead the church to pray for the renewal of the prophetic gift in its ongoing life. It is not simply the presence of prophecy itself that signifies God's presence among his gathered people, but the powerful, revealing work of the Spirit that convicts of sin and leads to repentance. Perhaps... In our domestication of the Spirit, we have also settled for a safer expression of worship, one in which very few are ever led to exclaim that, surely God is among you. Seeing that actually take place leads to prayer, that verse one might be the church's ongoing portion. Love, spiritual gifts, especially prophecy. It should be our prayer that God would manifest his presence among us in such a way that when people who come from the outside enter our services, they would say, surely God is among them. Not just because there was good worship or they sensed something, but also because there was the presence of the Spirit through spiritual gifts that brought conviction and clarity, that God would, um, would, would convict them because they would say, God prepared for me to be here today. God knew I was coming before I showed up. The things that were addressed, the way that, the, that the, the service went, the way that people responded, and even the gifts of the Spirit that were present among God's people indicated God knew I would be here before I decided to be here. And that's what we should pray for, that when people come in, they might experience His presence in such a way that brings conviction and the transformation we know comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You shouldn't be afraid of spiritual gifts because through them you can intelligently strengthen the body and you can contribute to the sense of God's presence among his people. But you might still be wondering, okay, how's this supposed to look today? Is it just a free-for-all? Can just anyone speak about anything at any time? Or, 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 or we're all just supposed to take it if somebody says something as if it's directly from God without asking any questions? What does this look like? And to be candid, I always have some hesitation when I preach this passage or these themes because I don't particularly like disorder. And I've been in enough services where someone said something odd that just threw things off or someone who was not a trusted voice in that community of believers decided that they were going to speak up as if by a gift of the Spirit. And I knew 
everybody present was questioning it, wondering if it was real. And I've been in services where people would interject at totally inappropriate times and just disrupt what was going on. And so when I preach on these themes, I always wonder if I'm opening a door to something that I'm going to have trouble putting back inside or back into the box. But I think the need is greater than my fear. Verses 26 to 40 also give us this assurance. They teaches us that you can be led by the Spirit and have good order. It says this, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at the most three, and each in turn, and let them interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged, and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission. Okay, I'm going to deal with this in just a minute. So if you're getting ready to walk out, just hold on a second, okay? They should be in submission as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Now there's a lot there. I can't go over every detail, but we do need to get some highlights. And before I do, I want to address those, that elephant in the room right in the middle, verses 34 to 35, where Paul talks about women. And this is one of the most notoriously difficult verses in this book for a multitude of reasons, not least of which is that Paul has already implied strongly at 1 Corinthians 11.5 that women could indeed pray and prophesy in the church. He's already said that. And so this is a kind of a difficult one to deal with. And to put it very, very briefly, the most likely explanation is that there was a situation in which women in Corinth, perhaps particularly wives, were interrupting the service or they were being distracting or disorderly in a way that did not build up the church. And we simply don't know what was going on. But it does not make sense for us to take these couple of verses as a directive for all circumstances. Let me tell you why. There are women prophets in the Old Testament. We see them there. And so it wouldn't make sense for Paul to go, okay, women can prophesy in chapter 11 and then say in, in chapter 14, they can't speak in church ever at all when we have examples from Scripture of how they did speak publicly as prophets. In fact, not only were there women prophets in the Old Testament, we read of them in the New Testament. Acts 21.9 says that Paul visited Philip, who had four daughters, who, and he calls them all prophetesses. The prophecy we refer to most when we talk about baptism in the Holy Spirit, is Joel 2, 28 to 29, and it explicitly says, your daughters will prophesy. And you could put all kinds of provisos on that if you wanted to try to do some kind of theological gymnastics and say, well, they can only speak to other women, or they can only speak in private. Listen, when the Bible talks about prophecy, it is not talking about something that happens privately, typically. It's talking about something that happens publicly. And so there is no good reason for us to take verses 34 and 35 and say, women can't ever speak in church, okay? That's not our position. It has never been. It's not going to be in the future because we believe that God pours out his Holy Spirit on 
all flesh, and that, as with many of the other things we've looked at in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul was dealing with a situation that he needed to correct. Now, you might ask, well, then why did he say, as it is in all churches? Well, I will tell you this, that in Greek, there's no punctuation. And many scholars, I think it's actually a better argument, that that doesn't go with verse 34, it actually goes with verse 33. And so he's not saying women aren't permitted to speak in any of the churches. Instead, he was applying the rules that he had just shared about prophecy and tongues to all the churches. He's saying this is how spiritual gifts are used in all the other churches. And so hopefully that gives some clarity to that. We simply don't know what the circumstance specifically was that Paul was dealing with that. But remember the letter is situational and Paul was aiming to address a particular problem in that church. We haven't had that problem. So we don't need to forbid women from speaking. Amen? Now, back to the highlights regarding good order, which include context, limitations, and accountability. First, context. We have to keep the setting of Paul's guidelines in mind. This was a house church. There likely weren't more than 30 to 40 people present at one of their gatherings. We have far more than that present at any one of our gatherings during the week. And that doesn't mean that we should prohibit spiritual gifts, but we do have to consider how the order in our church might look a little different in a larger setting. We would have to adapt what Paul says, his guidance, to our context. And I think that gifts of the Spirit can still be used in our services, and we want to encourage that. But it probably won't look the exact same as in a house church where Paul says anyone could contribute on any given week. We do have services that are intended to cultivate more of those opportunities for spiritual gifts in a little bit smaller settings where it makes it hopefully a little more possible, like on Wednesday evening prayer services or on our Sunday night prayer services. We intend that there are moments where those things could be used, where the spiritual gifts could be used, and they can be used in Sundays as well. And in any of our services, there are basically two options that this can happen with. Waiting where there's a, for the moment in the service where there is a lull so that you could be heard, or coming to the person who's in charge of that service, usually myself or one of the other pastors, and saying that you sense a prompting from the Holy Spirit to speak in a particular matter so that we can direct you to an appropriate time or way to do that if it is of the Lord. The next point is one of limitation. Paul says that there two or three could give a tongue and an interpretation of tongues, and that two or three could prophesy. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that because it seems pretty clear and because I'd just be emphasizing a rule that we're not violating at this point. Verses 31 to 33 teach that the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. The timing, the manner with which you use a gift of the Spirit, they are under your control as you're led by the Spirit, which means that you can wait for an appropriate time or that you can submit to accountability, which is the next point that needs to be made, and it's a really important one. We as a church, we're part of a fellowship called the Assemblies of God, and as a part of that fellowship, I'm an ordained minister through that fellowship. I'm an credentialed minister with the Assemblies of God. And if I start preaching strange things and word gets back to our network pastor, I would be asked about why I was preaching those things and I'd be held accountable for it. In other words, I have a network of accountability. One issue with prophecy in our period of history is that there have been too many self-proclaimed prophets that are not held accountable by anyone. They've made terrible statements. 
they've made false predictions about elections or COVID and a whole range of things, and there's no one to hold them accountable when what they say does not come to pass. That shouldn't be. On a smaller scale, some people believe that if they prophesy in a local church, they're speaking for God, and no one can judge them or hold them accountable. But on the contrary, Paul tells us to judge what is said. In fact, the ASV, the translation we just read, uses the word weigh, but it's the word that's often translated judge. Judge what is said. Make a judgment. Does this come from God or is it just this person grandstanding? Is it coming from God or is it the the ideas of their own heart or mind? Is it coming from the Holy Spirit or is it their own agenda? If someone publicly prophesies, it is the duty of the church and especially of the deacons, deaconesses, and pastors to judge what is said and determine if it's from the Lord. And sometimes that's pretty straightforward. A prophecy may be given, and it fits with what's going on in the life of the church. It fits with what's happening in the service. It's clear God is speaking. Other times, it's equally clear that was not God speaking. It doesn't fit. It's inappropriate. It draws attention to the self or to an agenda you know the person already had before they heard from the Holy Spirit. And so you can tell this is not coming from God. This is this person wanting to draw attention to their own ideas or their own agenda. Sometimes it takes prayer and discernment to to, to figure out, is this of the Lord or is this something else? And, and we need to, to address it. And if a person speaks up in a manner that pastors or elders determine is not of the Spirit, we don't try to shame them or humiliate them. If possible, I'll go to that individual and give them some guidance about how it might be appropriate to think about doing this next time or, or where they feel like, why they feel like they were led to say what they said. Because we want to encourage gifts of the Spirit not discourage gifts of the Spirit, but it's also important for the whole church to know there's accountability and that we won't be subjected to random ramblings, or worse, we won't be subjected to wolves in sheep's clothing. We're going to be held accountable for what we say. Even as I am held accountable for what I say publicly, so anyone else in the body. If you say something publicly, there's accountability that comes that's appropriate from the body of Christ, from a group of people that want what is good for you and not what is bad for you, but that also want to ensure that the body of Christ is being built up and not torn down. And the point of all of that is that you can excel in building up the church. And you might have questions about spiritual gifts that are beyond what I've been able to answer today. I wouldn't doubt if you do because there's a lot more that could be said. And I'd welcome, if you want to ask those questions, I'll do my best to answer them. But the main point I want, to, I want us to take from this morning is that you shouldn't be afraid of spiritual gifts because the Bible gives us directions for, for how to use them in a way that is understandable, contributes to the sense of God's presence among us, and is orderly and accountable. In fact, not only should you not be afraid of spiritual gifts, I want to end the service by talking about how you ought to eagerly desire spiritual gifts. How do you do that? I mean, the Apostle Paul tells us, and I think that this is the instruction that we need most, isn't necessarily correction for things that have gone wrong because we haven't had a lot of experience of these in the near past. But what we need is encouragement that says, how do we desire God's presence and his work among us? How do you desire spiritual gifts? The first thing I would encourage you to do is this. Reframe how you think about church. Too many people think of church as a service that they attend on Sunday and not as a community to which you belong and contribute. 
So start thinking about church as a community that you belong to and that you contribute to, not just financially or not just with your volunteering, but that you contribute to spiritually, that you're helping to build the place up. You're helping to build up brothers and sisters in Christ. You're helping to contribute to the sense of God's presence among his people. Think of the church as that community to which you contribute. The second thing I would say is this. Put it in a context of love. Make love the heart of your spiritual gifts in seeking God. We read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 together last week. And Paul says, love is the context of spiritual gifts, which means that if we want to see manifestations of the Spirit and we want them to be used in an appropriate way, certainly love will be the context in which that happens. So we should pursue love. In fact, I would think that this is one way you actually pursue spiritual gifts as well. That if you are pursuing love, you're pursuing how do I build up my brothers and sisters in Christ, that God is going to increase your ability to build up brothers and sisters in Christ by the Holy Spirit, which would be spiritual gifts. He'll enable you to do that. Third, ask God. Spend time in his presence and ask him to give you spiritual gifts. Paul says this is what we should do. He said, pray that you might prophesy Pray that that you might be used in spiritual gifts. Seek them. And so it is not wrong that we would ask God specifically, Lord, use me in these gifts. I want to build up the body. I want to be useful in your kingdom. I want to go deeper with you in the Holy Spirit and understand how you want to use my life and my tongue and my gifts in a way that goes beyond my own strength but builds up the body in a supernatural way. Fourth, be open and don't be afraid. We said there is loving accountability with the gifts. They have to be discerned, they have to be judged, but don't be insecure or afraid of accountability. The church is not like the world. The people here desire what is best for you, and we wanna experience the presence of God. And here, we don't believe that the only way to love is through affirmation. Sometimes the best way to love is guidance, is correction. And sometimes the best way is redirection. And that's what accountability does. It redirects when things have gotten off track. It gives guidance when things are headed in the wrong direction. So don't be afraid of accountability. Understand that accountability is part of love. Don't be afraid. Be open to the gifts of the Spirit. And finally, I would say this. Maintain a spiritual worldview. This is so important in our culture. And it might seem so simple, but sometimes because of what we watch on TV and the conversations we have at work and and the things that are emphasized in our education system, it is really easy to forget that there is more going on in our world than meets the eye. It's really easy to think about our relationship with Jesus as a religion. Our attendance at church is the ritual we do to maintain that religion, but that's not the case. Instead, attendance at church is your participation in the body of Christ. It's part of what it means for you to have a relationship with Jesus because you're part of his body. You read God's word and you pray, not because if you don't, you'll go to hell, but because you want to know what is God's desire for me. I want to walk in his ways, and I know there's more going on than what the water cooler talk is or what was posted on Facebook and you just have to remember there's a spiritual world and God has put his Holy Spirit in you. In fact, if you forget this spiritual worldview, you've forgotten not only spiritual gifts, you've forgotten what salvation is because salvation is spiritual. It means that God has cleansed you on the inside. It means that he has renewed your mind on the inside. It means that he has been born again to a new and a living hope. And so you have to maintain a spiritual worldview that says It's not odd for a Christian to think the Holy Spirit's going to show up. 
It's not weird for us to think God might actually want to say something. Has not God always been speaking? If he hasn't been, what are we doing? What is religion? Why would we bother? But no, we believe the Holy Spirit still speaks. He still shows up. And so as Christians, as believers in Jesus, we have to maintain that worldview that is spiritual in nature that says God is at work. When I don't see it, God is at work. And so I'm going to seek him. I'm going to ask him how he wants to use me. I'm going to be prayerful about how he wants to fill me with the Spirit and how he wants to use me to minister to his church, to contribute to the building of the body, and to contribute to the sense of God's presence so that when unbelievers come in here, they say, surely God is among them. And we don't say that because we think that we're better than another church or we're the church that's got the exclusive rights to the Holy Spirit. No, no, no. That's the prayer of every church, I hope. That any church that you might go to and attend, any church that you might show up at, I know it's not true, but that should be true. That every church has access to the Holy Spirit and desires God's work and his presence among them. I'm gonna ask if, Dave, can you come back up and we're gonna close the service out in this way. I'm gonna just ask if you would stand with me. And for a moment, as we respond to this, would you just ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, would you use me? Holy Spirit, would you direct me? Holy Spirit, would you guide my life? Holy Spirit, would you let me be used in gifts that would build up the body? Would you, would you just be open to that for a moment? Could you do that? Maybe you want to lift up your hands and, and just in a posture of, of, of receiving from the Lord or of surrender to the Lord, just lift up your hands and say, Lord, we desire your presence. We want to be obedient to your word. Your word says we are to earnestly desire spiritual gifts. Father, we are people of the Spirit. Lord, we are people who believe you speak. If you've stopped, we're in trouble. And Lord, we, we, we believe you still speak. In fact, Lord, we've experienced your speaking. We heard your voice when you called us out of darkness into light. We know the Holy Spirit's presence as you washed us, as you cleansed us from our sin. And Lord, today we thank you. You've not stopped speaking. God, we confess that sometimes we've been afraid of spiritual gifts. Maybe we've been ignorant of them. We just didn't know. Sometimes we've been confused. But Lord, today we desire, would you work in us? Would you use us? Just seek him for a moment, would you? Would you, if, if, if it's your heart, if your desire, if you heard the word of God today and your desire is I want the Holy Spirit to work in me, maybe that's not something you've ever experienced. That's okay. It doesn't mean that you can't experience it for the first time. Just tell him, Lord, I want to be used by you. I'm open. You shape me. This week, Lord, you guide me. You prepare me. Lord, you make me ready so that when the time comes, I can be used. Lord, give us gifts of the Spirit. Lord, I pray that there would be manifestations of the Spirit in our Sunday school classes, that our teachers would hear clearly from you, gifts of wisdom, knowledge, and discernment. I pray for gifts of the Spirit in our hallways, Lord, that even our greeters and our ushers would experience the presence of the Holy Spirit, have discernment to be able to speak a word of encouragement, that somebody coming in the door would say, how did you know that I needed to hear that? Lord, I pray that in our services there'd be gifts of the Spirit that would bring conviction and draw the lost to Christ. I pray that in our prayer meetings, God, there would be gifts of the Spirit, manifestations of your Spirit, gifts of healing. I pray that you'd raise up faith among us, Lord, that there would be individuals who would just be believing for you to do great things. Lord, that they'd be 
in a sense, hard-headed spiritually. Not in the sense that they're hard-hearted, but they're saying, I believe God's going to work. The Holy Spirit has assured me He's going to work. Lord, I pray that we would experience these things in our midst. Lord, we're open to you this morning. We want to hear from you. We want you to minister among your people. And Lord, we thank you. We can trust you to do it. Thank you, Lord, that it doesn't mean we're out of control, we're kooky, we're strange, but it means we're listening. Help us, Lord, to be good listeners, submitted to your spirit, willing to receive from you. Lord, we love you and we thank you for that. I'm going to ask if our uh, pastors, deacons, deaconesses, any prayer partners that we have, if you just make your way forward right now, um, we're going to dismiss But if you are here and you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus and this morning you've been intrigued by what that means, what does it mean for me to know Jesus, I want to encourage you to come and to speak with one of us. We would love to help you understand what it looks like to know that your sins are forgiven and that you're right with God. If you're here and you'd say, I've never been baptized in the Holy Spirit, you want to be baptized in the Spirit this morning, you come. We'd love to pray for you. Or if you would just say, I want to respond to God's Word. And I want, to be, uh, I want to be open and I want to pray with a brother or sister in Christ that God would use me in gifts of the Spirit, manifestations of the Spirit, whether here in church publicly or in a connect group or in a Sunday school, that God would use you. Then we're here to pray for you. I'm going to close us in prayer and then you can feel free to go. Please be respectful of those who are coming forward to pray so we can have an atmosphere of prayer this morning. But if you do desire any of those things, please come. We would love to pray with you. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you so much for the work that you do in our lives through the Holy Spirit. And we thank you that you continue to manifest your presence among us. We ask for an increase of that, Lord. We desire to experience that in our church. And we pray that it would grow. We pray that we would experience things that are undeniably from you words that are given that would give greater clarity, direction, and wisdom to us, that we might know the direction you are moving us, and that would create a stirring and a hunger in our lives. And Lord, we pray that your presence would be so palpable in our services that unbelievers would know that they've been in the presence of God. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that you still speak. Would you speak through us today? In Jesus' name we pray and we believe. Amen.